Welcome to season two of Gray Maybe, a limited series podcast and social experiment based on this season's topic, the body. My name is Jillian Schmitz. I'm a professional dancer, actor, teacher, author, artist, and cat lover. Through my own personal journey of recovery, I've found that things aren't just black or white, or as simple as yes or no. For me, in my recovery, there has been mostly gray area and a lot of maybes. In most of my stories, you can find the gray maybe. I will be sharing my own process through personal stories, interviews, and hopefully stories from listeners in an effort to help lessen the stigma and shame of disordered eating, eating disorders, and body image. If you'd like to share your story of ED recovery on this podcast, anonymous or otherwise, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using to catch future episodes of Gray Maybe. A note before we begin. The topic of disordered eating, eating disorders, body dysmorphia, and other behavior related to the body may not be difficult for me to share anymore, but it wasn't always this way. I recognize and anticipate the possibility of judgment or disbelief about my experiences, ranging from my own family members to strangers, in addition to the potentiality of losing certain opportunities for publicizing my own experiences. My stories and the stories of others on this podcast are told through the lens of our own experience. The revelation of our process is ours to tell. If you disagree with the views or stories on this podcast, know that we are not speaking on anything other than our own experiences and viewpoints. Take what you like and leave the rest. Nothing expressed or mentioned in this podcast is an endorsement or is meant to be taken as suggestion or advice. It is strictly the sharing of our own experiences and recovery. Any feelings this podcast activates in the listener is for the listener to process and recover from. Any criticism you have based on these experiences and choices are yours, and they are not anyone else's burden to carry. Trigger warning. Eating disorders, disordered eating, weight gain and loss, dieting, amphetamine use, fat phobia, bulimia, body dysmorphia, plastic surgery, depression, anxiety. Okay, welcome back, everyone, to the Gray Maybe podcast. I have a super, super special, special treat today. This is um, a woman who I'm a little shocked said yes, not because she's not so sweet and accommodating, but because she's kind of a BFD. If you don't know what BFD is, it's a big fucking deal. She's a BFD to me because she has a lot of eyes on her. So not only is she very successful in this industry and has had other careers within this industry, within this industry, but she also has a massive following on social media. She's got what I want to say a quarter of a million followers on Instagram and half a million followers on TikTok and She is not your normal, everyday, 20-something influencer. She is an inspiration to a lot of women of all ages, shapes, and sizes. She's an inspiration to the dance community in general. If you have never heard of who Kim Hale is, you have seen her 
I promise you. And if you don't know, and if you haven't seen her, you better ask somebody and they will know her. So welcome Kim Hale to the Gray Maybe podcast. And will you give us a little bit of an intro in case there's anything I missed? Wow. Thank you. Um, I just have to say it always just boggles my mind that people even see my videos. <laughs> so don't, I don't think of it like that. Um, yeah, my name is Kim Hale. I'm 55 years old, proud, and I am a professional dancer and an artist and a multi-hyphenate in other areas as well. So yeah, I'm happy to be here. This is really, really exciting. You have a wealth of knowledge from being in the professional industry, not only from more of a PR standpoint, but also very much from being in the industry as a dancer, growing up as a dancer, training as a dancer. I believe your mentor was Debbie mm -hmm. Allen. Yes, that's correct. Yes. So, okay. So everybody who knows that knows what that is, another BFD. So um, there, but today we're going to talk about what's this season's topic is, which is body dysmorphia, um, disordered eating, eating disorder, because more than on one occasion, you have said to me privately, not so privately, not a super secret, but you've mentioned like you really relate to this conversation. And you told me at first when we were at Masterclass Monday, after you had heard my interview on Dana Wilson's podcast, Words That Move Me. And I did an interview on that podcast, and I talked and touched a little bit about disordered eating, body dysmorphia, some of my struggles with that. And you told me right away at Masterclass Monday, you're like, I really relate to that episode. You know, I've had a lot of experiences that really that resonated with. And I was so, I don't want to say surprised, because I don't think it's something that a lot of people aren't experiencing. But I, it was, I guess I was just really refreshed by your honesty and your willingness to say something about it. And the fact that you're willing to come on the podcast, because I feel like, first of all, anyone who's willing to talk about this subject matter from a personal standpoint is so brave, so so much bravery, so much courage. But it also compounds when you have a lot of eyes on you and when your brand might not align or maybe it does align, but there's so many other considerations to put yourself out there and say something about a topic that can be really sensitive. So first of all, Thank you so much for coming on, speaking out, being honest with me right off the bat, and then still continuing to be honest and be willing to share your experience. Having said that. Wow. I was so, when I saw your post and then I listened to the episode, I was like, I felt relieved. I felt like, wow, I'm not alone in this. And that for so long... I mean, I've never really talked about it. There may be one person in my life that knows about this, and we haven't even talked about it for years, but to just know that other people have gone through what you've gone through, what I've gone through, through disordered eating, through all of that, it's comforting. And so when someone else demonstrates their courage, it makes you want to do the same. And for me, I don't think of, I think my, I try to think of my brand, I don't think of it that way, but I try, I've been working harder to just be authentic and realizing that the things I talk about or maybe I write in the caption are what I really need to hear. It's not like, you know, you put it in a different tense, but it's like, no, that's actually what I need to hear today. So I, I welcome the opportunity to talk about it, to share it with others and for myself to have a conversation with you just 
about what that is. So much of our lives have a lot of parallels and that we both kind of are into like, aren't afraid of our bodies, which I find so interesting on the flip side. That is the flip side. And I'm, I, I find it to be a really like weird, uh, just juxtaposition right? For people like you and I who kind of like to show off our bodies are like, you're in like a leopard, you know, onesie, like shaking it and I'm taking my clothes off. And it's like, we don't necessarily seem like people who would struggle with any of this. And I don't know for myself early on, it was to counteract those feelings or if it's been kind of, you know, I have other reasons why I like to do burlesque and, and express myself in that way. But it is a weird juxtaposition. I really relate to what you're saying about um, it, in the moment of exposing these types of things that we might normally keep from other people, it doesn't feel courageous and it doesn't feel necessarily brave, but the outcome of it does seem to inspire other people to do the same thing. And it does help me, the more I say it, the more I own it, the more I talk about it, the more I feel like it can't be held against me in any way, shape, or form. So there is some power in that. And uh, so I encourage other people to try that within what feels comfortable for them. Obviously, don't force anybody or feel like they should do anything. So I want to ask you, do you remember kind of like where it might have began for you? Like, are there some things you can recall about earliest behaviors or maybe there was a circumstance or situation and, you know, do you want to identify what your behavior was or anything like that? My behavior has been many things. But to start with, um, I think I grew up in a household. I love that you were talking kind of about the 70s and 80s in, your, in the last episode, which is so fascinating. Because there was a certain culture around bodies and women and all of that. And my mother was always on like the latest fad diet. What were those shakes that people used to drink and all of that? And I would, Weight Watchers shakes? Yeah, all those different things. And I actually was pretty normal body type as a kid growing up. And I remember I was a figure skater and they were weighing people. And I got weighed, started getting weighed when I was eight years old. And I was kind, it was kind of weird. I was kind of into it in some weird way. I, I felt there was power in that and to see those numbers every week. So that's my earliest member of being, mem that is my earliest memory of being aware of my weight. I probably was under a hundred pounds. I don't know. It was later, probably in my teen years, I was running track and doing sports at that time. I had left dance and no, it was before. Actually, let's strike that. I actually remember seeing a documentary called The Children of Theater Street. It was about young ballet dancers in Russia and how they're handpicked. And the girls wore leotards, no tights, and they had these cute little socks that rolled down. And they were really tiny. And they were getting weighed and measured to see if they could go in the school. And I got really obsessed with it. My father had taken me to see this documentary. And I remember taking my allowance and riding my bike. I wanted to find a pair of those tights to wear. and. I started, my body started changing and I just started becoming aware, you know, I was getting, my body was changing. I was probably still on the thinner side, but I wanted, I was looking at this ideal of what at that time is much different than it is now, what a ballet dancer's body looked like. Because then emaciate, being emaciated was the norm for 
a ballet dancer. I don't think you see mm -hmm. that now. You see muscles, you th see things. You don't see skeletons, if you will. Mm -hmm. So at the same time that all this was happening, my family was in a lot of turmoil. My parents probably should have already been divorced. They stayed together for the kids. That worked out really well for both of us. <laughs> um, and, you know, that need to control everything. And so that's kind of when I really started to like, well, I remember saying to myself, I'd rather be thin than happy. I said that to myself at a young age. I look back and I think, wow, wow. All right, Kim, I'd rather be thin than happy. I accomplished that. <laughs> I accomplished that for sure. I you got miserably thin. I manifested that. I think I did. I could not. I heard you share, you know, being in school bathrooms. I could not make myself uh, vomit, which is probably a good thing. But I loved a diet pill. And so that was kind of what I did. And um, I got fairly thin to the point where my father got freaked out. And he was somebody who was kind of pushing that narrative about being thin and an athlete and all of those things. And I remember him coming home. He, he may have felt guilty. I don't know. But coming home and on the table in the kitchen was every kind of like, there was a wonder bread kind of like outlet. And there were pies and cookies and cakes and this all on the table. And he was really encouraging me to have whatever I wanted. And in that moment, I started the journey on like compulsive overeating and basically not learning how to process my feelings, pushing them down, which I was probably 14, 13, 14 at that time. And maybe did that for 30 years, secretively. So the shame that's attached to that is powerful. And, you know, being able to have the conversation today and talk about that is, uh, you know, is, it means a lot to me to be able to share that, to say, you know, I just couldn't get a handle I still, to this day, it's still hard for me, my emotions, you know, to say what I feel. I say what I feel, but I, I feel guilty about it sometimes. I think because now I'm actually living in those feelings rather than pushing them down. So it's uncomfortable. I guess that's what it is. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. I describe a lot of times uh, my eating disorder as my bestest and earliest friend because it was something I always used to cope. I didn't have to think about my parents as well staying together for the kids. If it wasn't for you kids. Oh, my God. If it wasn't for you kids, right? Um, pushing down those kinds of feelings. I didn't have to, you know, every time something came up that I didn't like, I could focus on, right, well, but this is what I can control and I'm going to outlet here. It always offered me a solution. Now, it wasn't a good solution. It wasn't a healthy solution. It wasn't a longevity solution. It did more damage than it helped. But in the moment, that was my cope. And um, that, was, uh, that was my earliest coping mechanism. I feel like mine also started around 12, 13. Well, yours might have even started a little earlier, some of what you're talking about. Um, and in the recovery rooms, it's there's this idea that 
people, once they get recovery, like this is big in alcoholism, they talk about that when you started drinking is when you were emotionally stunted because the, you never were able to work through feelings at a at a more mature age. So if you think about whatever your cope was, if it was drugs, if it was alcohol, if it was, you know, gambling, if it was uh, e- eating disorders, if it was alcohol, if it was like marijuana, whatever it was that you used, that that became your thing, whatever age you were, you might possibly be stunted emotionally around that age. And when I heard that, I not only saw it in the addicts around me that were in recovery, I was like, that makes so much sense for them. But I saw it in myself because I saw myself reacting to problems like a 13-year-old girl. Nothing against 13-year-old girls, but everything was a crisis for me internally, right? So even if I didn't externally seem like I was reacting that way, I was reacting like a scared 13-year-old who didn't know how to do or take care of herself. So that's incredible. Because I always tell people, I'm 12. I always say, it's my 12, the 12-year-old in me. I said, just the other day, my brother said, I see you're out there living your 12-year-old dreams. And so 12 is around the time. It was the same time dance was taken away from me, actually, around the same time. And that, Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was a pretty devastating. I've talked about that somewhat, but that was pretty devastating to me because... Uh, that was my other coping. Maybe that was my other coping coping mechanism up until that point. That I, as we all say, I could express my feelings without saying anything. And so when you right. take that away from me, what am I left with? I need something. And so, you know, that, that was a, a big pivotal moment probably in that as well, because I lost, I felt like I lost control. I, I basically... Uh, had been nothing major looking back. I mean, I did outbursts in class. I liked to be the jokester and the center of attention. Surprise, surprise, you know? And my parent, my mother told me, if you get talk out one more time in class, there's no more dance. And I, and I did it. And I told the teacher, you cannot, please don't call. Please don't call. And she called and that was it. And I was like flinging my body around throwing it on the ground. We were on vacation in Mammoth and I was just devastated. And, you know, I was telling somebody else, they paid for that. I paid for it too, but they paid for it because the turmoil that happened in the next probably four years was a direct kind of, you know, also drinking and all those things in high school um, were all, you know, a direct result of me you know, just trying to survive. Right. Survive. And when when were you able to come back to dancing? Um, I started back like around 18. And so I always had that kind of like underdog vibe. I kind of still have that today, like always trying to get back. So I, in my story, I say um, dance was taken away from me at first, and then I took it away from myself later. That's kind of how I frame it, because that was kind of a pattern as well. And now you've given it back to yourself. I have. And I'm and I realize now that, you know, I try to share that I don't believe there's any achieving any goals, any dreams that I may have are attached to my happiness. I do have that understanding. So any kinds of things that I want to do, I know that happiness is an inside job. I'm a constant work in progress. And none of those things because I had great things happen to me and it didn't change. I was still 
the same person that I, I try to talk about that. And I have given it back to myself, my 12-year-old self. And it's a gift. I also say, and I'll say this, that I was actually having this conversation with my brother as well, that there was something about losing both my parents that also freed me. It doesn't mean that I didn't love them or have um, a sense of loss, because that was a very dramatic, the way that they both left this world was very dramatic. Um, but it also allowed me to give myself permission to just be who I was. You know, there's a theory that artists cannot fully create until their parents have passed. Oh, wow. <laughs> there's like an actual saying about it or something, or maybe a famous artist has said that. But um, I, I, I can relate to some of that. My parents are uh, still both living. I'm sorry for your mm-hmm. loss of your parents. Um, but I do feel the restraint especially doing the podcasts um as far as i know my my some my immediate family some of my family knows about it but a lot of my family does not know about it uh that i know of and i'm just fine with that <laughs> it's, uh, for now you know to articulate that it uh actually i i said that to my brother and he said wow he's like i love seeing what you're doing if they had just put a little bit of support underneath you you could have done a lot of good amazing things. I said, well, that didn't happen then, but now I'm parenting myself. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. so, you know, that's kind of where my whole philosophy kind of comes from is that, you know, getting another chance to reimagine it all and giving yourself permission to reimagine it. It's not that it's going to be the same, that it won't be the same as it was, but it can be what it is today. And I love that you're bringing up parenting the self because a lot of times in recovery, that's what has to happen. And we all have to decide how we want to parent ourselves differently than we were parented because maybe our parents did the best they could, but it wasn't exactly what we needed. And a lot of times in these moments of coping with various things, we have to find the kindness and the love for ourselves like a parent would for a child in a very functional and loving way. And so I love that you're talking about that because most people that I talk to in recovery talk about reparenting themselves and being the parent that they needed or being, you know, the person who they needed when they were 12 or 13 or, or whatever that is. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is, there is a lot to that. I mean, I was raised in a household. Both my parents left this world with, I never heard anybody say, I love you, my parents. That's a big one. That I had to like go, okay, they were not able to, that was just not the world I grew up. But I walk around, I'm in that mirror, I'm in that affirmation, like, I love you, Kim, let's go, (laughs) you know? And I, yeah, and that's a big deal because this is the thing. If you don't have people modeling, saying I love you, saying I love you to each other, saying like, how do you learn to do that? You don't. You don't learn to do it for other people. You don't learn to do it for yourself. It becomes really difficult to love yourself if you haven't seen other people show you what that looks like, Yeah. especially when you're a kid. So that's major and it's hard to do. Like anybody who's saying like, it's easy to look yourself in the mirror in the eye and be like, I love you. (laughs) If that's your situation, pat yourself on the back. But I got to say, if that's not your situation, you are certainly not alone because oh, it is 
hard to do. That took me till my 50s. So you have time. <laughs> and and guess what? That's a lot sooner than a lot of people. Yeah. That's a lot sooner than a lot of people. Okay. So do you have any experiences in the industry or being a dancer specifically that were really difficult with body image or dealing with food, maybe triggers you might have encountered that you want to mention? If not, we can always move on. To no, I love, I mean, listen. <laughs> so in the, so when I was at about, I guess I was in my tw- early 20s, very, you know, kind of in that early 20 place, I moved to Las Vegas. I was in a show there. I was, I think, a swing in the show, but I was a long-term swing. Someone had got hurt. And I was put on a weight notice. Now, when I pull up the pictures of that, what I looked like on that weight notice, it's disturbing, first of all. And just for people who don't know, oh, yes. what is a weight notice? A weight notice is when somebody, uh, uh, the head of the show, the company manager who oversees the production, uh, determines, I never really articulated this, determines what somebody should weigh to be acceptable to be in the show. Wow, that's heavy. I never really quite articulated it. Somebody determines. So it's not, it's just whatever they decide. Yeah, there's no doctor there, (laughs) you know, saying, okay, for this person, they're healthy, you know, vitality weight should be that. No, it's just like some random. Some random number. Maybe, I I don't think I've ever really weighed that. So I didn't pass the weight notice. We got on the scale, another theme, again in the scale in front of everybody, line up. But now I'm in my 20s. And somebody in the show took me aside, the like assistant, I guess it was the dance captain, the person kind of overseeing the dancers. And she said, here, go to this place, give them 20, knock on the door, give them $20. They'll give you a shot. And I guarantee you, you won't be on a wait notice for long. Now me at 20 something, it must be, I must've been 21, 22 with no self-esteem. Of course I say, okay. And I go to this place and I basically get shot up with amphetamines. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And I do this for a long time. I do it. Because what? I have no sense of self. But also you just didn't know, and you I know, nowadays they couldn't do we kind of know what, we kind of know what amphetamines are, but like, you know, back in the day, I don't know if everyone was super well aware of all of the different drugs and what their, I was snatched. You know, capabilities were. I got skinny, but when I look at the pictures, my eyes are so dead. My eyes are dead. I always say when I look at that picture, I look so hungry. I look so hungry yeah. and I didn't sleep. Yeah. So that's one of my earliest memories. My second memory, just to back that up, was the next time they pulled me in the office and they said that you are an amazing dancer, Kim, but you're not attractive. And we suggest that you get, you know, some plastic surgery would be good for you, you know, but if you want to be in this show. And I'm like livid because I grew up with my mother telling me I was not attractive. Very chorus line, you know, very. So I get on the pay phone and I say, guess what they just said? You were right. They said, I am not attractive. And a day later, I get a call from my mother who says that my grandfather has said that he will pay for whatever I need to have done. 
To which at that point, I declined it all. And I just said, it is what it is. And that took me back another few steps in my self-esteem. Because now I just walking around with my hair in my face all the time, feeling like I don't love to dance anymore. And now I've just basically been told, you don't really fit in here, which I felt most of my life. And that the art doesn't matter. What The way I dance doesn't matter. It's just the way I look. And then he finally just, the company manager finally said, you should just leave the show and go to this other show. Well, the other show, that guy also was notorious for (laughs) being abusive of people on their way. So I went on a cruise ship and went to New York soon after. But yeah, defining moments. I can't believe that you had the wherewithal to turn that down. Like, because in that moment, I would not have blamed you for being like, oh, okay, well, this is what I have to do. And I don't have a strong sense of self. And I guess I just have to be like, um, you know, maimed. Like, let's be honest. I mean, it doesn't matter how the results are and what culture people think is appropriate or pretty or beautiful or whatever. You're being maimed. You That was an opportunity to maim yourself to be more appealing for whatever someone's idea of that was in that moment, as we know and see, any of us have been around for any amount of time, these trends change. What was really beautiful in the 70s isn't what was really beautiful in the 80s, wasn't what was really beautiful in the 90s, wasn't what was really beautiful in the early 2000s and 10s and 20s and 30s. So those things do change also like fashion changes. So I can't, I'm so impressed that you were able to be like, no, it is what it is at that age. Although you were in a lose-lose, right? Yeah. You weren't going to feel better your- about yourself if you had all that done. And you were just going to be in pain and like tortured. I mean, I went for the consultation. I don't know what it did was. I just, and like it was brought up most of my life that I turned that down. Like, why would you do that? You know, and I just something, if there was one moment of clarity that I had, I just knew that it wasn't for me. And Yes. Was I pushing my feelings down then? Yes. I was eating. I was drinking. I was doing a lot of other recreational activities, you know, because again, I was so deeply affected by that. But I had that one moment of clarity where I said, I'm not doing that. And I'm grateful for that. I haven't really thought about it in that kind of framework, but I definitely had one moment, you know, and I remember he passed away, this guy and everybody in the like Facebook group was like, he was amazing. He was this. And I was like, he actually wasn't. He was actually really damaging to my psyche for many, many years. Yeah, let's normalize talking shit about the dead some more. <laughs> I would like, I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. I'm serious. Everybody wants to sugarcoat people when they die. But you know what? Only if you deserve it. Only if you deserve it. it. Was, like, you know. It was like a chorus line, Morales, which I felt nothing. It was definitely like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He had some fun times. I tried to gloss it over. He did the best he could. But, honey, you definitely, not only did my family mess with me, but now I got this to overcome, which took me a long time to overcome that. Mm-hmm. A long time. It stuck with me. I remember people said, you're always hiding. When I went to do my cruise ship contract, they're like, you're always hiding. And I, because mm-hmm. I was so insecure about everything then. It's crazy how in your head and how locked in that stuff gets. I remember this kid in high school, like I was must have been in junior high and I was sitting behind him 
and or he was sitting across from me or something. And he, I was just like looking at him. I don't know if he was doing something that was kind of distracting. He was kind of a kid that was kind of distracting. So I don't know what he's looking. So I was looking at him and he looked at me. He said, like, what are you looking at, big nose? And in that moment, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, there's something wrong with my nose. And I was obsessed with my profile. I was obsessed with my nose. I still have issues with it. I still can't stand my profile. Like, it has taken everything in me not to have work done because I'm also very afraid of, like, hospitals and that type of stuff. But that's really the only thing that's held me back because I just can't. It's been so hard to accept and, like, not, you know, I mean, and it, it permeates kind of every bit of your being. Like like you said, you would hide. I avoid people to see me at a profile. Oh, yeah. I avoid, you know, like it, it envelops how you move through the world. I'm always thinking so of I, it. Even on set, I know which way to turn. I know which way is the batting. I remember doing headshots recently and he said, turn this way. And I let him tell me. And now I say, we're not even shooting any that way. Because I'm not going to like right. any of them. So we can just stick on the angle right. that I like and just keep it moving. <laughs> but it does affect it. When I'm dead, I'm very aware of it still, that yeah. piece. But, it, you know, I, I'm not at this point. I've had, after going through skin cancer surgery and doing all that, I'm not letting anybody touch my face <laughs> at this point. Right. Good. And also, Good. And I, I don't think you should. Also, I think there's this whole thing about when you feel unlovable. And then all I'm doing at that point in my life is attracting circumstances and people into my life that affirm that. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So I'm, yes, I mean, it's like, okay, now, oh yes, you're definitely. And then I, now it's like, it comes back to, and then I'm like, oh yeah. Then I went into like, I went on the cruise ship and then I got, you know, somebody's like pays attention to me and I get into like this horrid affair with somebody who's married, you know? So then that happens. And like, again, unlovable have to have like a toxic situation, somebody that can't fully commit, you know? So it's, it's like this right, cycle, right. like, stop, please. Right, right. You're going to keep finding the evidence mm -hmm. to prove whatever your idea is. Yeah, I, I've done all of that and I definitely relate to all of that. Um, do you recall a moment or like a rock bottom where you realized maybe you needed help or you wanted to change. Was there a moment? Was it like a series of moments? I would say there's a, there's been a series of moments, but the most recent was I think in COVID. Like, I mean, everything had kind of gone wrong. To shit. <laughs> like for real. Like, no, no, like, I had COVID, like I had just come up, I lost both my parents and that Christmas I get Bell's palsy. And then I'm laying with stitches in my face. And I think COVID in some ways, there was some gifts in it because I started cooking for myself and I just started, I had the space to like treat myself a little better, but I was like, I just, I can't do this anymore. There were so many moments where like I left um, my then job. Um, and would have had like an interaction with somebody going back to talking, like reacting from that 12 year old space and pull up at 7-Eleven. This was very common and go to 7-Eleven and buy very foods that I liked as a kid. My favorite was like a huge bag of Cool Ranch Doritos, some kind of hostess products going back to that moment at that table 
and a pint of Ben and Jerry's and whatever else and going home and eating that and laying there, like for five minutes, maybe I felt some relief and then feeling guilty and shameful. And it was like, this has, this needs to, to stop. And I started going to therapy. I, I did all of those things. I had been to a 12 step program earlier in my life for other things. So I'm, I was aware of that. And, um, yeah, it was just that moment of being on the couch. And it was kind of the same moment where I decided that I needed to get back to dancing, that I heard this voice say, it's time to get back to dance. And I was like, really? You know, I'm overweight for me. I was a normal, probably a normal size. I have white roots out like two inches. I'm in the middle of that transition. I'm, I'm winning all the way around. I have stitches and in my face. Like my whole face is full of stitches. And I'm by myself. I'm here. And so you got both of those messages during mm-hmm. COVID, like the lockdown. You got, you're like kind of in down and out and you got the, this has to end mm-hmm. message and I need to go back to dancing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the dancing comes, came with a lot of baggage too. And it was baby, baby, baby steps, baby steps. And just learning to like, okay, I'm going to cook for myself. Because I think I used to eat Taco Bell every day, like in 2019 to 2020. I think I ate Taco Bell every day. Like I didn't eat any nutrients. Now my message is always like, you need nutrients, Kim. You need nutrients. I I frame it that way. I don't even know why I need nutrients. Mm -hmm. And really just kind of, I went through a period where I let myself just have what I wanted to, just to uh, give myself that space. Because I felt like when... I allowed myself to to stop restricting myself or thinking of food as this is good or this is bad and just have what I felt I needed at any time. That helped me. Yes. That's for me. Yes. That's not for everybody, but I had I read this book, I think I told you When Food is Love by Jameen yes, Roth. And it's an amazing book. I'm going to link that in the show notes. Yeah. When it's a great food book. Food is love. Cuz it is talk about that and that's definitely what my experience. And my my eating can get off very easy even today. Not that like binging and, and that, but just I have to be mindful. I also had like a diagnosis. I had like really bad candida in my body. That was around the same time. And that was all of related to because I'm eating white flour for every meal and sugar and that. And kind of for me too, it did help, though I still eat some things. Taking some of that out took some of that, the just cravings for it because it's so in my system also. But just dealing with um, learning still to like say what I need, say no when I mean no. I'm, I, I can be notorious for that. Like I did just recently, by the time this person will never hear, but like I accepted to do something knowing I did not want to do it. And that can be a trigger. That can definitely send me down a bad path. Like I did not want to do this, but I felt pressured. And I was supposed to do it. And I said, I don't want to do it. And rather than act out against myself, let's just say no. And if they're uncomfortable with it, it's unfortunate. It's a little late notice, but it is what it is. I have to take care of me. So constantly learning to speak up for myself. I'm loud, but when it comes down to certain things, I can be still that fragile 12 year old inside. I'm I'm exactly the same. I I 
seem like I might be someone who's very confrontational, but I actually really dislike confronting people or having um, any kind of uh, non-peaceful discord. Um, and for me, any type of uh, I, I also have a tendency to people please. Um, I've always had a hard time finding a sense of self. And when you don't have a really strong sense of self, it's really hard to advocate for yourself. It's really hard to say no. It's really hard for all of those things. Um, but at the end of the day, like a lot of the recovery is putting yourself first, right? right. And looking after that, the kid in you. I'm glad you brought up the fetishization of food and how sometimes in some people's recovery, they have to allow themselves to have everything because it takes the energy away from it being taboo. And I've also had to do that. And I continue to do that because I quickly can get in um, an idea of what I can and can't have, what I should and shouldn't have. Um, in addition to, I also have to view food as fuel for myself because I would get so strict on what I thought I should and shouldn't have. I would use it as a, as a way to not eat. And I have to remind myself that much like a car without gas, my, I don't function well if I haven't eaten. And that's not just, can you do a million jumping jacks without puking and falling over? It's also, is your brain working? Why are you upset right now? Do you have a headache? Do you feel highly anxious. Well, when was the last time you ate? When was the last time, you know, like, did you do that for yourself? Maybe once you have a snack first, see if that solves some of this. And it is, it's like, it's baby steps and it's like parenting myself. I talk about it a lot. It's like kind of, it's very much like dealing with a baby. <laughs> it <laughs> is. Myself. I, that's why okay. I say nutrients. It's in the same thing. Like I'm moving, yeah. I'm doing a lot more activity. Maybe I haven't been eating enough. Maybe I need to eat more, you know, and constantly reevaluating the situation or my brain's not functioning. I can't remember the choreography. Oh, wait, what did I eat? When, like you said, what did, was the last thing I ate? So always having to rediscover that. And um, going back on something you said that you had um, been affected by Bell's palsy, you were the second person that I've interviewed on this season that had Bell's palsy. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So Dave, who's in a, um, an episode before yours, um, also had Bell's palsy as a kid. And I don't know how common Bell's palsy is, but it's, it's interesting. They so say I'm you only get it right once, now. apparently. Mm-hmm. But I never fully, I'm not 100% feel like, I don't feel like I really got recovery a hundred percent from it because I, maybe it's because I also have like, uh, that's the same side that I had the, a big skin cancer, uh, Mm. surgery on, but it gets like, if I get tired, I I always say, like, I'll post a video on my stories and I'll be like, Oh, class was good. I can see my lazy eyes here. And that's the same side I had Bell's palsy on. It's like, it gets droopy. I'm like, Oh, I worked hard. My eyes lazy today. (laughs) Well, and if anybody's seen your videos, I guarantee that's the last thing they're looking at. <laughs> no, I um, okay. Um, so is there anything, I, you kind of touched on this, but I didn't know if there's something you wanted to add. Do you remember anything about your early recovery? Like if there was anything that you remember, any kind of feelings about that or any specific thing? I mean, you did kind of mention some things that you kind of were doing in early recovery. I just didn't know if there's any other details I mean, you wanted to add to that. I think addiction runs in my family. I'm an addict. I can, I have the gene for sure. And comes up, it can come up in a lot of different ways. It ta- has taken different 
forms and different times in my life. Um, what I'll say is just, you know, having learning to feel my feelings, saying, ouch, saying I'm mad, saying I feel disrespected. And the biggest and most one is learning to have some fucking boundaries. I didn't even know what a boundary was. And that's a big one. And kind of ridding my life of people who can't accept my boundaries, you know, and where I land in things. So, and by boundaries, it's, it's also, you know, if I say no means no, no means no. Stop trying to guilt me into things. You know, all of those, that has been probably when you've spent your life like numbing out in various ways, when you actually, I'm like, oh, wow, I'm doing the best I can, but I'm experiencing everything. I'm experiencing it full and present. So that's the biggest one is learning what the boundaries are that I have, learning to not accept certain behaviors from other people, learning how it's a struggle still, like how I communicate, trying to be more grateful to people that have, you know, gone out of their way to help me. I really try to express that. I didn't used to in the past. And so I really try to do that and um, stay focused on what brings me, you know, joy and love in my life. I'm not a person, you know, I taught people say, you're so joyful. You're so this, honey, I do not wake up joyful. Trust me. I'm not the person. I do not. It is a practice. I say I cultivate joy. I know how to tap into it. It's like being, not that it's fake, but it's like an actor. I know how to get there. Sometimes I didn't, I've chosen in my life not to do the things to get me there. But now I know this, when I am my best self and what that looks like and what those practices are. But I do not wake up like I'm a joyful person. I love that about you. (laughs) I love that you do. Your Instagram is very inspiring, but it doesn't feel put on. It never feels forced. It feels authentic. And um, I think a lot of us say and do the things we do to try to help ourselves to those those areas. Um, Because people will tell you, like, if you see me walk on the floor today, I will walk out, slump a dump, like come out. But when the music comes on and there's lights, honey, I will pull up and be ready. And then I'll slump a dump right back off to my normal self. You know, my body hurts, all the things. You know, I go through all like, oh, all the things. So, but in those moments, it's like everything else just goes away. I know you know that feeling. It's just like, it can be a classroom combo. It can be, it doesn't have to be anything fancy, but it's like, it's like you download into your best self and my most authentic self and the self that I tried to deny myself also. The one that maybe I felt like I shouldn't be touching my body or doing things, you know, like that's not acceptable for somebody. But I like to do that. Actually, I do. You know, somebody told me the other day, stop crawling around the floor at the playground. And then 
you're going to get sick. <laughs> it's dirty there. I love that. I said, I always peer out after class. So I think the grossest thing I saw myself do was crawl on the floor and then lick my finger. That may have been the grossest thing I ever did. But I think I fake, that- I think I fake lick, to be honest. I don't think I really made content. You're an actress. <laughs> you know, you didn't need to method it. And plus, that's what the playground is for, is crawling yeah. around. For those of you who don't know, the playground <laughs> is an actual, it's a dance studio. But it's called the playground. I call it so. the Island of Misfit Toys. That's what I call it. Because it's like, even better. You, you know, you could just deem yourself and nobody cares. So I have to have my fix of that. I love all those videos. Um, I, I'm glad you brought up boundaries or a lack of boundaries. Um, I also struggled with that a lot. Um, and I like to explain that in the past, my boundaries have looked like... Um, a door with no fence, (laughs) you know, like you just expect everyone to go through the door, but you could just cut across the property at any point in time because there's no real fence. Um, That's kind of where I started. I've had to find that and I'm still not great at that because of how it feels when I do set boundaries. Um, And it's hard because the people who benefit from you not having boundaries are usually the people you're trying to make boundaries with. And so the people usually have a problem with you setting boundaries, it's because they're benefiting from you not you not having any. One hundred percent. The other thing I'll say, and I don't know if you can relate to this, is expectations of others. Oh yes, I um, I have to tell myself a million times a day that expectations are pre-existing resentments. Yeah, and like they're no pre-premeditated resentments because I expectations are premeditated resentments because I actually had the experience of um you know, having expectations of how somebody will respond. But then I actually had it happen to me and like how somebody was expecting me to respond. And I really got to see a tangible example of what that was. And it's like, I've done this and I've done that and I've done that, but it wasn't enough. And they were telling me that it wasn't enough. And it's like, no, you have a lot of expectations about how I am to respond. And I think I heard that quote from Oprah or somebody and it's like releasing the expectations of how other, you know, how people will respond. The other part of that being, or that things will be any different than they, the past will be any different than it was. That's important because nothing will ruin your day more than some ruined expectations. And for someone like me, I always have ridiculous expectations. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I try to tell myself, to make the bar so low that I can step over it. Because otherwise, you know, if you have that high of expectations for other people, imagine the expectations you have for yourself is crippling. Oh, yeah. I relate to that 100% that people like the expectations I put on myself is like beyond. So it makes, you know, it is true than what you expect others, but they don't understand what you're, you know, also that that's reflecting on you and what you put on yourself. So what would you say today is kind of your relationship with food or your body um, or your addiction or your disease, however you want to describe it? I know you've touched a little bit about it. It's interesting because a lot of people on social media have commented that I lost weight. Interesting. They felt the need to to tell tell you that in a public forum. (laughs) People will say, and I really just kind of gloss over it because I don't like to get caught in that. Because it didn't, I didn't do anything but what I love. I wasn't trying. That's like a fix. That's a junkie fix for me. If someone tells me I've yeah, lost weight. So I try not to even. That's like a hit, a hit of heroin. Oh, yeah. Honey, I cannot. I cannot like get into that. I just, I'm like, thank you. 
you know, I can't, I appreciate it, but it's like, that was never the intention. And isn't it funny that like settling into where I am right now, you know, is where it is, but that, that has been a little tricky for me to navigate because yes, I, when I went back to dancing, I dressed, I was like the hoodies and things. And then I started feeling more comfortable and I kind of like stepped out and stuff, but it's not because it just organically happened and it wasn't like I had a goal. So I have to be tiptoe around that, like you said, because it can be like, oh, well, let's go further. You know what I mean? And how far? And it's like, honey, no, my face is already getting like <laughs> getting losing weight. You know, I don't have uh, it's starting to get uh, a little bit. Saggy. I'm like, I could have a few pounds on my face. My mom used to always you say, look- you have to let keep a few pounds on your face. <laughs> You look lovely. No, it's all good. I wouldn't think that at all. It's funny though. Um, but yeah, so just being mindful of that and not getting sucked into that. I think it's like I said, the constant reminder to like fuel myself. Like I went to the store right before this. I was like, okay, nutrients. I was feeling low energy. I I need to be a little more mindful of just you know getting what I need, which means protein and things like that. Yeah, that um, when we start to go into recovery and you kind of the it seems most people have this um, this experience where once you start feeling the feelings, it can be pretty overwhelming. And especially if you've been dodging, avoiding, suppressing, coping, doing all that kind of stuff. So if you're used to suppressing everything, all of that comes up. And someone had said in a recovery room once that recovery is the unthawing of grief. And I, yeah, right. What a sock in the stomach for those who resonate with that. And it is, it's kind of like, it, it ta- it's, it's this feeling that every day, every moment now you have to kind of process these feelings, like what I call raw dogging the world. You, you don't get any kind of, so, you know, you're not getting a drug to, to numb it. You're not being able to numb out with food. You don't have these regular things to kind of take the edge off. And you have to go through those moments and those feelings day to day. And it can be a lot of work at first and it can be really hard and it takes, and you just kind of like keep uh, finding more and more emotions that come out. It's like this repressed stuff, but then it does get easier and then it becomes kind of second nature. And then you're like, oh man, I hate this feeling and I just got to ride it till it's done or, or I know how to help myself, you know, get through it faster. Um, so I'm glad that you keep talking about the feelings because if there's anything that I want people to really take away that might be in the midst of suffering from this, it's that's, that's where it is. It's, it's not about the food. It's not about the weight. It's not about the body. It's not about the thing. It's about all the feelings. And when that first started becoming something that therapists were telling me, I was like, no, it's really, but you don't get it. Like I'm a professional dancer. It's about the body. And, and and it was, but it wasn't, you know, it was what I wanted to do, how I, and it, it gave it some extra difficulty and st- like hard to separate, but it still wasn't. Um, now, moving on to another kind of topic. Which well, let me, let me ask you a question. Yes, like, as ahead. dancers and you're dealing with so much rejection and you're dealing with so much whatever. It's not even rejection. Like for me, I just can't get in the room. So there's that. It's true. But that's rejection, yeah, right? It is, it is, that's it rejection. is rejection. So having that concept, I think it's important in the past too. I mean, if in the framework, not just, I mean, some of the people listening to this may be 
dancers is, you know, that con going back to that idea of like, it can't, it's nothing on the outside, the perfect job, getting the perfect audition. None of that will fill the hole that you experience, you know, so that it, I just, I just wanted to touch on that because it's as dancers, there is, it's a double-edged sword. Yes. You're dealing with the, though people have been transcending this and I think it's amazing. You know, there's a lot of new voices. There's some, some spaces now where people, uh, what people may consider unconventional. It's just different costumes that people wear as dance, as dancers. I like to say different costumes are getting in some spaces, but, um, yeah, just, just this idea of the pressure of all of that and learning to talk about not wanting to feel your feelings and, and find it. That's one thing I wish in my twenties, kind of in, at that time, I just lacked like any kind of, I didn't have a support system one, but I also had, um, I didn't just didn't know how to manage it. I just didn't, mm -hmm. you know, and that can be challenging, especially now. I think it was Jackie Slight or somebody who asked some kids in a class, like, where do you go now? Like when people came, they would go to the edge scholarship program or they would go to this or that. And they kind of got some guidance or whatever. Now people are just out here on their own, like just figuring it out, you know, and, mm -hmm. and trying to find their way. So. Yeah. We're, we're still trying to kind of like keep our community together. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like it's a little harder than ever to do right now. Yeah. Um, speaking of like our community, why don't you think more people or dancers discuss this topic? Oh, it's so fascinating. Dancers are just fascinating because, because we're, we've started to really talk about inequality in the community. We've talked a lot about racism in the quality. We've talked about, you know, abuse of power and sexual abuse and sexual assault in our community, but no one's talking about this as much. Well, it's interesting. I'll, I'll give, it's not exactly the same, but I'll say some, it's a metaphor. I was on a job. I was dancing like a year ago. My body was killing me. Other over 50 dancers there, body killing, slammed, smashed, hurting. Nobody talked about it in the over 50 community. Nobody would say anything. We put our chins up. We stuck our heads out. We went out there and did it. And afterwards, when it was over, I said to someone, was your body hurting? And girl, my body was hurting. I said, isn't it funny that nobody will talk about it? Same thing. Mm -hmm. This, it's all, it's the same in the sense that to my feeling, it's like a, there's a badge of honor. It's all about what, you know, the face we put out there, this and the vulnerability and the shame associated with it. The shame, I think. It's great. It, it, it was so comforting. When I, saw, when I saw the topic and I heard your story, I was like, girl, no wonder I, I like you so much. I connected with you because you get it. You know, but all, like, all the years, like, I never have talked about it. I've talked about a lot of things. And I think people are afraid that people won't hire them or this or that. And, I mean, people have done a lot worse things. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, you know, we're always living up to this ideal. What is the ideal? Yeah. It feels also like a weird... I don't know if gaslight is the right word, but there's a weird kind of like, we want you to be as in shape as possible for a majority of these roles, right? It's, there's still this ideal of what a, a, an athlete or a dancer should look like um, or is being represented as that a lot. It is changing, but it's still not moving fast enough for me. Um, 
And, but at the same time, it's like, but don't talk about your issues with it. Don't talk about working your body. We're going to expect you to do ridiculous things that nobody else can do. And that's why you're getting hired to do it. But don't talk about it hurting your body or being difficult. Don't let anybody know your pain, you know, suck it up, be righteous. And this whole idea is like so self-oppressed and so self-abusive. And, um, you know, I have definitely been that person on, you know, a job a couple times that has been probably a producer and maybe even a choreographer's worst nightmare for kind of blowing the whistle. I did at once on a job early on when they had changed the contracts and it wasn't what we were originally told. And I was the only one that was getting really upset about it. And all the dancers said, yeah, we're with you. And then when I went up to the choreographer to bring it up, they all, oh yeah, they all bailed because they were too scared. And that happened. And another time on a music video, we had been dancing all day on the cement, doing jumps, lifts, all this thing. And they just again, 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 again. And I'm like, no, no, you guys figure your thing out. You guys, your lights, your camera, your thing, like we've been doing it. Why are we doing it again and again and again? And another job. Like, and now I'm thinking, I'm like, wow, am I just this dancer? It's like so high maintenance. But there's been a few times where I just am really like, no, I don't think we need to be out at 4 a.m. doing a run through without our coats on a slippery stage because of the dew, because you need to camera block in our costumes. No, come on, stop it. You know, sad. and a producer and a producer saying, oh, you're just lucky it's not raining as she's in a giant coat, you know, that that kind of shit. And so kind of getting off the topic here, but I would like if there's any choreographers listening and I do think that this is changing. Um, I do think that choreographers more nowadays and there's still some choreographers, you know, that are veterans that fight for their dancers and don't put up with that bullshit. But I do want to encourage choreographers or dancers as you move into that choreographic role that the thing is, is like, I'm not even saying you have to be difficult about it. I'm not saying you have to be rude about it. But there is a way of letting people know the truth, letting people know the truth. Hey, I just want to let you know that this is hard on a person's body. And I know we don't want any injuries and I know we want the best thing ever. So let's make sure everything's good to go so that we can get the best out of everybody. You know, like just things like that. That's like, you know what? I think we need to take a break. You know what? I think we need to have knee pads for our dance. You know what? I think we need like all these things because when people don't know, they don't know, right? No one can read our minds unless we say something. And I do think that a lot of the reason why dancers don't make as much money or we don't get all the things and and this, that, and the other, we, you know, part of it, and this is a whole longer conversation and people might be mad at me for saying it, but we self-oppress. We don't pay each other for our work. We don't speak up. We don't say when we're hurting. We don't ask for the things we want. We're like, oh, it's fine. Could I maybe get a knee pad to wear under this material? Like it's, it. And I get it because we've been trained to think that we're a dime a dozen, that we're replaceable. Don't be, you know, um, a, a problem. Don't speak. Uh, but at the same time, there's that's a double-edged sword because now you will not get respect. You, No one's going to know if you need something. The other side of that is dancers don't get treated because they're because um, if you don't do it, somebody else will. So right. we're our own worst enemies. If you don't do it, somebody yes. out there will do it. So nobody worries about right. it. Because 
right? Like you're saying, but it's the flip, the our own detriment to our own community because there isn't right. solidarity. People, I've been on things right. where, you know, I respect young people today. They know that SAG rule book. They were coaching me, and they knew this, and we're getting this, and we just missed a, our mm-hmm. second meal, and this and that. And of course, they're immediately thought of as the bad kid, the bad child, mm-hmm. right? Right. So it's hard. It's a hard one to navigate because, like you said, people will leave you in the dust. They will leave you. Oh yeah. They will leave you in the dust. But they'll take all the benefits yeah. of it. Yes. Yes, they will. Of yes. somebody speaking up, they just don't want to be attached to it. Yes. Well, it's hard, and it takes a bit of courage. And you know, as you get older, you kind of can own that a little bit more than when you're younger. But nonetheless, it's a whole extra conversation. But I do think there's some leeway there of like you know, respecting the self, having boundaries, standing up for the self, honoring the self, all that kind of stuff. And also when you go to wardrobe fittings and things like that, and they bring you the, you know, who knows what they're, you know, you put the sizes down and it's up and it's all about how the language is like, you can get triggered. And can we just, can we just talk? Let's just talk really quick. Cause I haven't brought this up on any, any of the episodes yet. My experience of, of wardrobe fittings, I, know that they are going to put me in the worst thing I ever want to be in. That is just what I go. Unfortunately, that's what I go in with the idea of like, if for some chance they put me in something I like today, what a miracle. But really, it's going to be worse than the worst thing you could ever imagine. And every time I give my sizes, it doesn't matter. It is always too small. And I give my real sizes because I don't like showing up and things not fitting, but it never fails. They've got sizes, two sizes, too small. I'm saying, I don't know. I don't think this is going to fit. You know, and I'm shuffling out with my ass hanging out of a skirt, you know, like I, I got to show you, I really can't get it on, you know, like, cause they got to know that it's, oh, it's not always happen. my favorite when you can't pull the pants up. That's my favorite. No, that, that's always, I you're do. winning. You're like, I, I shuffle out with my ass hanging I'm out. Looking just so at they can it. See. I'm like, my one size yeah, is not going like, to fit in this. <laughs> I can't. It doesn't fit, just so you know. I, I'm not lying. You, you have know? to be mentally but strong for those. Yes. And you have to kind of like, what I have learned to do, and I don't know if it's healthy, is I just don't look. I just don't look. So whatever they want to put me in, I'm like, yes, this is great. As long as I can do what I need to do, right, physically, that there isn't a restraint physically, that's something I will make a big deal about because I don't want the choreographer's work to suffer or for myself to be, you know, like in something so tight I can't breathe or I can't have lunch or something like that. Like it has to be functional. But beyond the functionality, whatever ugly thing that they want to put me in that they think is really cute, I just don't look and I avoid the mirrors and I don't look and I take pictures, you know, for the gram, but I like don't really look. And then when it's on TV, I don't really look. And I just the whole time kind of pretend like I look a different way. It's a very weird this way so of disassociating. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. But it's the only way I can get through it because otherwise I'm just going to be miserable, right? Yeah. And I don't want to be miserable because so much of that is out of our control. We don't usually get to dress ourselves when we go on these jobs. That's how right? I feel when I come for hair and makeup and they say, you know, come with a bare face. I'm never coming with a bare face. First of all, let me tell you that. I'm never coming. But sometimes That's a setup. They, they look at you like, like I think of the last job I did, it said older, beautiful woman. I was gagging. I showed up. I told the woman, I promise you my face will take a good beating of makeup. Honey, they always feel so good about themselves once they beat my face because you show up looking so raggedy. But for me, that's the one that can trigger me down. It's like, oh, 
you know, and then once I get a little makeup on and you start to feel like, okay, I feel, I feel acceptable. I feel like it's, oh, I deserve to be here. I mean, I can quickly get spiral with some bad hair and makeup, but I also have to remind myself that oftentimes when I'm looking at what they've done for their work, it looks different on film than what I'm looking at in the moment. And so oftentimes this is like a little trick. I will take a photo in, in the dressing room and see how it looks because on a photo, it usually looks way better than what I'm looking at in real life. And that's closer to what it ends up looking like on film because I will start to want to fix and change. Oh and that's not fair. It's not fair to them, you know, because they don't come and fix and change your choreography and stuff like that. So it's not really fair to those to I'm their known uh, to like put departments. So I, I went through a period how you were saying about costumes where like everybody and the whole cast will have lashes and they'll be like, no, you don't like I get nothing. And I'm the same. Why the, am I always the person I'm, who doesn't get the lash? I have to get be the, the natural blush. person. This, the, recently, I broke that pattern. I had some fierce makeup. But I remember for a while, I was like, oh, everybody has lashes on. Why do I have to be the one with no makeup? Or it's just the characters. They did me, they did me great on Maisel. I oh, will yeah, say that. It, but, it, but it did feel very bare on Maisel. I felt like everyone could see every pore oh, wow. because I didn't feel like they really shellacked it. But the for lighting. some reason. The lighting on Yeah, they... They know exactly what they're doing. And I trusted them. I let them do their thing. And I was glad I, I did. I was like, what do you mean the post so, woman doesn't get to have lashes? <laughs> post woman should <laughs> always have should lashes. definitely have lashes. <laughs> Why don't I get lip gloss? Um, so social media, you're, you have a presence on social media. Uh, that can be a plus minus. Um, how do you, and you talked about this a little bit already, like how do you navigate at, how do you navigate it in a healthy manner? Use it as a tool. Like I know in passing, you've mentioned people comment and sometimes they make comments that you're not very happy about. Like, how do you deal with that? Because I'm sure you're getting weird inboxes from people or people just saying the weirdest thing. Like because they see you, they think they can just give their opinion because nobody asked for it. And, you know, I've gotten better with it. At the beginning, it actually was a gift because in the beginning when I was started posting, I got really triggered when people would say, get it, granny. I got so triggered. I know you hated that. I hated it. I hate it. I still comment about it. It's just like, because really white hair equals grandmother. Is that really, are we really at that basic kind of stereotype? I find that so sad. But anyway, it helped me to kind of like find a framework for what I wanted to say. Not just like, this is me. It is, it's me, but... What, how, what is the context I want to put it in? And the context that I found was reimagining what's possible at every age, whether you're young, whether you're older. And that kind of then gave me a purpose behind what I was posting. But I, I've been pretty good with it. I think I've handled it all right. I don't get too many weird. Because in the beginning, if you wrote something crazy, I just blocked you. It just was easy for me. I was like, and eh, block. <laughs> that was, and so I think I blocked all the people that I needed to, and I don't get a ton of it. The grandmother comes, and every once in a while I'll post it up there just to, to stir things up a little bit. Mm -hmm. TikTok, somebody came for me the other day. They said, ah, oh, the gray hair makes you look so old. And I, I shared something about the honey. The TikTokers came to my defense. I felt bad, actually. They were going, oh, good. Because, oh, yeah, you know, you could share the comment, like, and put the video. Yeah. And I had some really slutty video that I used with it. And it was so good. I was living for it. But, and another time, like, 
Yeah. So then they came to my defense and then the whole conversation, then I just quietly go away and let the kids talk on my face. Well, yeah, because you know what, there's, it's, I think there's something bigger. What you're doing is bigger than what you're doing. So being a woman that is not only in her twenties, wearing things that only quote unquote 20 year olds should wear you know, dancing in a way that only certain aged women should dance, having a hair color that only a certain, you know, uh, era of her life should be, and you know, short hair. As oh my woman. God. And short hair. How dare you, right? <laughs> All of these things, like you are being an unruly woman, you know, like you, you are not fitting in the boxes that everybody wants you to fit in and you are being a rebellious woman. I don't fit in the Might box. Might I even say nasty. Maybe You're sometimes. being a nasty woman. Sometimes. Right? Yeah. But it it highlights, right? It highlights the subtle misogyny or the not so subtle misogyny of what women are allowed to be and not be, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what is pleasing and what is that pleasing? Is it only to a man's eye? And what man is that? And what man has that opinion, right? All of those things. So I'm glad the TikTokers came to your defense because we're not playing that anymore. Oh, no, honey. We are not. And it's also like, what? I, I think one of my favorite posts I ever did, I said, when people tell me to act my age, I'm like, this is my age and I'm acting like it. Like, what, what does that mean? This is my age. Yeah. And is it? And I always say the same analogy. There's different costumes. I'm the same age as J-Lo. We have different costumes. We have different costumes. Mm-hmm. We choose to express ourselves in different ways. And sometimes it makes people uncomfortable. It makes my peers uncomfortable. They like to remind me that I'm not as old as them, you know, even though I have white hair, I'm not as old as you. That's my favorite. They love to tell me that. They love to tell me that all the time. I'm like, I, you know, I'm here to redefine what it, what it means to be even just a dancer over 50. We could start with that. What's possible? Well, I love that. And I like things that challenge and redefinitions. I'm very, very into that. Because why can't we tell other stories? Like I always, it's like, you know, what, what does a grandmother look like? Oh, I, you don't look like a grandmother. What does a grandmother look like? Right. What does a grandmother dance? What like? does a grandmother dance? Like what does a, what's possible? What, you know, it's just, it's so fascinating. So when I got that kind of juice behind me, then it gave purpose to what the conversation was. So then I can take a video that I have and put it in the context of someone saying, you know, your gray hair makes you look so old. And people are like, that was the perfect clapback video, you know, me crawling around mm-hmm. on the ground. But it's like, yeah. so that helped me because it, it doesn't feel like it's just me saying that. And I, I, uh, it gave me, like I said, a different purpose behind it and not getting attached to it. It's the greatest, it's the greatest freaking humbler. I, I kind of live for it. TikTok, man, they'll take you on a ride. You're like one day, Somebody, I'm like, oh, 8.5 million people watch it. The next day, they're like, 200, girl, 200. That's what you do. You think that's the algorithm? Though, too? It is because what I've learned yeah. is you don't have any control over it. No, you definitely. And no, some days no. you just hit the right song, the right moment, the right, right thing, and it's just it's consistency and it's consistency. But it's like it it'll humble you so fast. <laughs> I love that you said consistency because that's kind of the name of the game as far as being successful in our industry as well as I think it's just consistency. If you keep showing up, you'll have success, you know, 
Um, but it's hard because like you said, it's really out of your control. So much it is. is That's why I kind of just resigned myself like six months ago. I said, if I can't get, if I can't, nobody knows what to do. That's the favorite thing. We don't know what to do with you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then I'll just get to like post my little videos, Instagram and TikTok will be my stage and we'll keep it moving. (laughs) And I'm going to continue to do what I love and say ouch every now and then and Mm -hmm. navigate those feelings. And, you know, do what I do. Somebody said to me the other day, why are you dan- dancing so hard? Why, why? You're never going to be asked to do that. Okay, I might not be, but that's what fuels my soul. I got a lot to get out. There's a lot inside of yeah. me. Honey, I, I, I yeah. I got a lot to get out. So it's also just the process. <laughs> like there is dancing full out and then there is dancing Kim Hale full out. <laughs> And people need to take a number and see, because it is, you can see that you dance with every bit of life force that you and five other people have. That is apparent and that is consistent. And people might think they're full out, but they do need to watch you to know what full out actually looks like. That's just doing what you love. You know, I want to like give the best expression and I have, like I said, I have a lot to say and I have a lot to say without words. I have a lot to say with words, but I know that in those moments, I'm the most authentic expression of who I am. Everything that maybe I've pushed down, everything that I don't want to say, I say it in those moments. I can tell. Last question. Do you have, and I'm, I always say this, I'm not in the business of giving people suggestions or advice, but if you did have any suggestion, what would it be for people who might be suffering right now? Be patient with yourself. Be patient with yourself and know that it can get better. It can get better. And, you know, people always say, tell, reach out to somebody. And I don't know, I was recently reminded of somebody in our community that passed. And I'm like, you know, it's great to say, reach out to somebody. But it's not that easy, and it's not always received. Yeah, it's not always the right person you're reaching so out to. I, I don't. I I was reminded of that recently. So, you know, if you need help, don't be afraid to get on and Google it. Don't be afraid to do. If you need to do it in private, that's okay. Don't feel like I have to reach out to somebody. Look up. Trust that the universe, when you make the intention that you want to get better, that you'll be guided where you need to go. And that's kind of how, for me, in my experience, that is kind of how it worked. You know, the willingness being the first step we know, just the willingness. And I always say self-effort and grace. Make the self-effort and um, let grace also come in. But... Be kind to yourself. It's hard times. And give yourself space. I just remember beating myself up all the time, the self-talk. Oof. Mm-hmm. You know? And I wasn't one to reach out to somebody. I guess that's why I say Same. that. I had to, like, Google Same. search because I never felt safe. If you're A lot of people who struggle with this, you're not going to feel safe to reach out to somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're just yeah. not. Out of the fear yeah. of, like, oh, here we go, like, you know, eating disorders, especially I find are so secretive that it's part of 
the actual disease is being so secretive. So to reach out or out yourself, it's it's not an option really sometimes early in recovery. So I couldn't agree more with everything you said. Kim Hale, you are truly oh an inspiration for so many people. And also myself specifically, because I am a feminist and I am getting older and I want to be able to be free of weird ass labels. I want to still be attractive. I want to still be whatever I want to be. Oh, you will right? be. I'm confident. I, Honey, you are the but queen. You, know what you I, are the queen. I live for you. My favorite, the balloons. I was living for you. Uh, yes, the, the balloons. balloons. So yes. I, we were passing that around act. some threads. We were like, oh my God, I live for her. <laughs> I live for her. And the mask was hot. It was hot, the whole thing. I'm, I'm still rocking masks. But this is the thing. Like, you are doing such important work just existing. And if there's anything I could say to anybody who's listened to the episode, like, what an inspiration. What an example of embracing who you are letting it fly, letting it sit, letting it stay, letting it settle, and just committing to that. What an important lesson. Kim Hale, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh my God, you rock, Jillian. You know I live for you. Thank you for having me. I'm so humbled that Kim Hale decided to go on the record about her journey to body acceptance, mainly her brutal honesty about her struggles throughout her life to get to this point. I think it's safe to say that Kim Hale is challenging stereotypes, preconceived notions, and expectations. She is quite literally changing the world by being authentically herself. I can't think of anything more noble. I hope you found something that resonated in my conversation with Kim today. If you're listening to this episode and you're realizing that you're more like Kim and I than not, welcome. And I hope this helps you take a step in the direction of recovery if you haven't already. You're not alone. Just a reminder for anyone who needs to hear it. You don't need to wait until you're sick enough to get help. In fact, you don't have to be sick at all. Just a desire to feel a little better. If you're listening and right now you're struggling with an ED, disordered eating, or other behaviors, welcome. Know that whatever you're feeling, there are those among us that have probably felt it too. You're not alone. If you're listening because you have someone in your life that is suffering or is in recovery for an ED, welcome. You are also not alone. Even having an eating disorder myself, I have not reacted the best I could to others who were struggling before my own recovery. I've attached the do's and don'ts of how to deal with someone suffering in the show notes, as well as how to contact Kim and myself and various links for help and recovery when and if you're ready. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you were able to find something relatable in today's episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this is also a social experiment to see if in telling my story, I can embolden listeners to share their stories. If you'd like me to read your recovery story on this topic, anonymous or otherwise, on the podcast, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com, G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who helped make this Gray Maybe podcast happen producer and editor Roderick Barge, cover photo by Jose Perez, music licensed by Pixabay, special counsel Jada Ellingham and Roderick Barge, special shout out to supporter Patty Olgan. If you'd like to support this podcast, please rate, share, comment, 
and subscribe. Until next time, bye for now.